Our passage this morning is Romans 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? With, with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is his word. Thank you, Pat. Boys and girls can head out to story keepers and to nursery. As kids are heading out, let's uh, pray God's help as we think about this great passage today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we come to one of the mountain peaks without a, without a doubt throughout the scriptures, one of such great encouragement, but we want to hear it with uh, fresh ears today, those of us for whom we are very familiar with this, we pray that this would be uh, a thunderbolt in the lives of those who perhaps have not read this passage before, as we hear of your love for us through Christ. Minister to each one of us, no matter uh, what point in the journey of our faith we are at today, that may this be an encouraging time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing that while it may have been a long time since you've watched this, uh, many of you, I'm sure, have seen Steven Spielberg's 1998 film Saving Private Ryan. It tells the story 
of an army captain called John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who in the aftermath of the World War II landing at Omaha Beach is ordered to find a solitary private amongst thousands of displaced soldiers. Miller is told to find Private James F. Ryan in order that he might be returned home to his mother, whose other three sons have been already killed in action. And in one scene in the film, about halfway through, Miller's team is together in a dark and uh, deserted location during the night where the squad is desperately trying to get some sleep, but most of them are kept awake, haunted by vivid memories and fears of what the next day might hold. And the camera pans around the various members of the squad, and one of them is actually sleeping. And one of the other members says, I don't know how he does that. Another suggests a clear conscience, perhaps, to which another says, yeah, what does it say? If God is on our side, who the heck could be on theirs? Another word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and the camera then zooms right in on another member, member, Corporal Upham, so that all that we can see at that point is the candle light flickering on his face as he speedily but deliberately corrects what the other has said and whispers these words, if God be for us, who can be against us? I've wondered watching the film what those men thought were thinking as they referenced those words. The soldier who first mentions them uh, seemed to be suggesting that whoever has God on their side will win any war. If we just pray enough, perhaps he'll, be, he'll join our side. Our purpose is good. Our cause is good. Perhaps he will also protect us as we go into battle against the Nazi army. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, the enemy will just wither away. However, as they said those words, you got the sense it was more of a vague hope that having God on your side ought to be some sort of help in the long run. Wasn't much certainty to it, not really much logic. To change the context to a less serious setting, sports fans often think along similar lines. I heard a true story this week of a little boy praying for his cricket team. That would mean nothing to most of you, so let me change the sport and the team to the Eagles so you can relate a little better. The boy's being put to bed one night by his dad, and in his bedtime prayers, the boy prays that the Eagles will win the next day against the Cowboys. And his dad says, but Richie, what if there's a little boy in Dallas right now praying that his team will win? And that really stumps Richie for a moment. His dad's leaving the room. He's about to turn the lights out. And Richie says, Dad, wait, come back. Let's pray again. Dad comes back, and with real determination, the boy prays, Lord, please don't let any boys in Dallas be praying tonight. <laughs> if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, as you'll have heard, if you were paying attention to Pat's reading, this famous verse comes in our passage today. And you'll be perhaps not surprised to hear that it's not actually about warring armies or battling sports teams. Those of you visiting today, we've been going through the entire chapter of Romans 8 during this season of Advent. Each week, I've been reminding us that historically, Advent has been the season in the church calendar that focuses our hearts and minds not so much on the first coming of Jesus that we'll celebrate in a few days at Christmas, but actually even more so on the second coming, when Jesus is going to come back to make all things new. Advent locates us initially in the dark, 
where it invites us to recognize the brokenness of our world, but then it points us to the light of our hope in the future when Jesus will come back and heal all that brokenness. And here in Romans 8, Paul has been helping us to think how we should live in this time between, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. I mentioned in previous weeks that in his book, Knowing God, uh, Jim Packer wrote, wrote that Paul's letter to the Romans is the high peak of the, of the entire scriptures. He then says that chapter 8 is the high peak, the Mount Everest of Romans. John Piper, in his recent book on Providence, goes even further about our passage today. He writes this, In my judgment, this is the greatest section of the greatest chapter of the greatest letter in the greatest book in the world. Now, as a preacher, I read that, and I read good news and bad news. The good news is that I get to lead us through this stunning passage today. That's a massive privilege that I do not take lightly. But the bad news is that I could preach on this passage for the next 52 Sundays and still never do it justice. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit's here today, promises to take the weak words of this preacher and apply them to your heart so that you might know the glorious assurance that is provided by Paul in these words today. That's certainly my prayer. Here's our sermon in a sentence today. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation and there is no separation from the love of God. We're going to think about that by looking at this passage under three headings today. First of all, the invitation to the courtroom. Secondly, the invincible logic of the gospel. Thirdly, the invincible love of God. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation and no separation from the love of God. First then, the invitation to the courtroom. It comes at the start of verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Paul's like a defense lawyer in this part of, the, of Romans 8 here, ready to conclude his case with his closing arguments. But as he addresses us, it's almost as if we're both the accused and the jury rolled into one. Paul's we here is not like the royal we of, of the queen, where she might say we are not amused when she's referring just to herself. Paul's we here is an inclusive we, where he means I, and I hope you as well, you readers. So that the thought behind Paul's opening question is, I know what I, I'm going to say in my closing argument. Will you say it with me? He wants us to own all the things that he said up to this point in chapter 8 and then to own what he's about to say as well. It's probably not too, uh, too wise to be too dogmatic about what the, all these things refer to here. Some commentators think it refers to everything so far in Romans, in the whole book of Romans. Some think it's Romans 5 through 8. Some think it's Romans chapter 8. I think it's actually possible that these things just reference what comes in the preceding few verses, starting where Pat started to read today, beginning verse 28. Let me just read those verses to you again, 28 to 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verses 29 to 30 really flesh out what Paul has said in the famous verse 28. 
That is, what does it mean uh, that God works all things together for good for those who love him? It means that from beginning in eternity past and extending to eternity future, God is committed at every step of the way to bring his people to his, their promised glory. Verses 29 to 30 have been called the golden chain of salvation. And the point of this chain is that there are no breaks in the links. That is, nobody falls out. Every foreknown person becomes a predestined person. Every predestined person becomes a called person. Every called person becomes a justified person. And every justified person becomes a glorified person. That is, for those who love God, all things work together right to the very end for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul then, in our verse, verse 31, takes a step back from this grand foundation for our assurance, and he asks, well, what shall we say to these things? It's almost as if he's saying there scarcely are any words good enough to respond to such a solid promise of future glory. But as we're about to see, Paul has an answer for his own question as he takes us into the courtroom. Paul's answer to that question takes up the entirety of our second and third points. And the second point is this, the invincible logic of the gospel. As our counsel for the defense, Paul articulates his case, as you may have noticed in the reading, in the form of question after question after question to show that the truth and the depth of God's love for us cannot be refuted. So through these questions, Paul anticipates possible accusations that he shows simply will not hold up to scrutiny. And his first question is the one I referenced from Saving Private Ryan at the start of the sermon, comes in the second half of verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, in one sense, of course, the answer to that question is nobody. However, in another sense, the more accurate answer is everybody, but who cares? And Jim Packer actually brings that out in his book, that the common translation, who can be against us, isn't totally accurate and misses Paul's point. Literally, Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us? That is, he's asking us to reckon up who's, who is against you and then compare the two sides. And when you do that, you realize, that, of course, well, whoever it is that's against you, there's no contest. Who's against us? Everybody, but we don't care. Why? Because God is on our side. And with God on your side, you will, ultimately, you will ultimately never come off second best. Just listen to these words for a moment from the, Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, as we think about who this God is. Chapter 40, 21 to 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Once you've worked out that there is no one more powerful than the creator and sustainer of the universe, once you've concluded that nothing and no one can thwart or frustrate or hinder God's purposes, then you know it doesn't matter who's against you because God is for you. That leads to Paul's second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John Piper, in that same book I mentioned, says that this verse, Romans 8.32, might just possibly be the most important verse in the entire Bible. And I think we could say it certainly is, that is that, at least for establishing in the hearts of God's people the assurance of why we can know that God is for us and 100% committed to use all his resources to bring us to glory. How do we know that God is for us? Because he proved it. Paul uses a common rhetorical device here where he shifts from the greater to the lesser, from the the harder to, to the easier. Here's how you can trust God. He's already done the hardest thing for you. Because the hardest thing God ever had to do was to sacrifice his own son in your place. You might remember the famous story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and his son Isaac, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Abraham is willing to do it, to trust that God knows what he's doing. But of course, God steps in at the last minute. God was never going to ask, actually make, let Abraham go through with that. But he provides us a picture of what God himself would do, that there would be no one to interrupt God when God was called to sacrifice his own son. God would do that for us, to pay for our sins, to purchase forgiveness for us, to purchase that verdict of no condemnation. And Paul's saying here, if God has done the hardest, greatest, most difficult thing of all, it's guaranteed that he's going to do the lesser, the easier thing for you to give you all things. If God would send his own son into this world to live the life you should have lived, a life of perfect obedience, and to die the death you should have died, paying the penalty for your sin, taking hell in your place, if God would do that for you, what possibly is going to stop God this week from giving you the grace and the strength and the peace that you need to get through it? If he didn't withhold his own son, do you think he would ever consider withholding your promised resurrection body, the declaration of your total forgiveness, your adoption as a child of God, your place in that new creation, your eternal flourishing? Of course he wouldn't. That's this God who is for you. In his book, Lament for a Son, the theologian Nicholas Walterstorff writes of the tragic death of his son in a climbing accident, and in the preface he writes this, if someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity. Not all of my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story, end quote. And you see, our Heavenly Father is defined by the fact that he, too, is one who lost a son, handed over two sinners for sinners, for us. That's how you know that God is for us. Paul's next question comes in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Our theology on tap group right now, we're reading a book called Truth on Fire by Adam Ramsey. And in this week's chapter that we were discussing, Ramsey recounts a story told by the French existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre 
uh, in his book, Being in Nothingness. And the story is of a man sitting alone on a park bench, enjoying the lovely surroundings. However, he suddenly becomes aware of the presence of another person at a distance staring at him, and he feels somewhat paranoid. These vague feelings of shame and anxiety and desperation come over him. What does this stranger think of me? Are they judging me? And the man becomes consumed about how he might escape from the piercing eyes of this other and the scrutiny to which he feels himself being vulnerable. And then all of a sudden, much to his relief, the man discovers that the other person is in fact not another person, but a mannequin. And the feeling of shame disappears and he rejoins, returns to enjoying the park. But Sartre's parable seeks to capture the truth that all of us, all of us, are the fearful man in the park. We're haunted by the prospects of charges against us, of condemnation. The expectations of our boss or family members can condemn our best efforts. The behavior of our children may condemn our parenting. The dark thoughts of our heart, the ruthless self-talk in our minds, the numbers on our bank statement or on our bathroom scales can all speak a word of condemnation over us. And in response to all of these and more, Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's saying, who will overrule God's verdict in a believer's life? And the answer is no one. No one. Not Satan, not other people, not even our own hearts. Believe it or not, some of us actually try to play the prosecuting attorney in our own lives and bring charges against ourselves. You say, I would never do that. Some of us have done this. We'll say, well, I know that God has forgiven me. I just could never forgive myself. And that sounds humble to us, but is actually behind those words betray a subtle form of pride. Because what you're actually saying is that your verdict outranks God's verdict. That your opinion of yourself trumps God's declaration about you. Paul declares it is God who justifies. So it doesn't matter who might stand up in court to accuse you. Because no accusation will hold against those who trust in Jesus. That you can know now what God is going to say about you on the very last day of history. And that verdict is an emphatic, loud and clear, not guilty. For those in Christ, there's no condemnation. Paul's case for the defense continues to build. He asks his next question, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul's question here is a similar one to the one he just asked. But what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't actually answer this question. At first, it might look like he's saying, Jesus Christ is the one who condemns, but that's not what he's saying here at all. Now, the implied answer to his question, again, is, is no one. Who's to condemn? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus in his death was condemned already in our place. But more than that, he says here, Jesus was not only, he not only died, he raised, was raised from death to life, and now, right now, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. I wonder if you've ever thought about why Jesus needs to intercede for you. I mean, Paul's just told us there's no charge, there's no condemnation. We've been completely justified, made right with God already. Does the fact that Christ is interceding for us mean that perhaps something was 
left incomplete in his payment for our sins on the cross? Well, the clear answer in the Bible is, is no. But rather, in the words of Dane Ortland in that, that book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, so many of us have read, Jesus' intercession applies what his atonement accomplished. His intercession applies what his atonement accomplished. That is, his intercession channels to us what he's done for us on the cross. The love that Jesus showed you when he died on the cross is the same love he still feels for you every nanosecond of his resurrected, ascended life. See, you'll never find Jesus talking behind your back to the Father with words like, you know, he's such a gutless, pathetic Christian. I'm so fed up with him. Or forget her father. She hasn't managed to regularly read her Bible, say her prayers after eight years of being a Christian. And then she bellyaches that I seem so far away. He doesn't do that. It's not that he denies our guilt or he makes cheap excuses for us. It's just that he's never going to condemn us anymore because of our failures. Because he's already been condemned in our place. So that every moment of every day in the midst even of the sin you commit... Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, praying for you, not against you. He's applying his death to your sins, declaring that every one of them, past, present, and future, has been paid for in full. His intercession is like the constant hitting of the refresh button of our justification there in the court of heaven. Which brings us to Paul's last question, or two questions, and our third and final point, the invincible love of God. Look at verses 35 to 36. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul asks two questions here. But before he answers them in his concluding remarks, he brings in an Old Testament reference, specifically from Psalm 44. Anytime in the New Testament, a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, it's always worthwhile to go back to the Old Testament reference and to, and to read it in context and ask yourself, why, why is the author included this? I mean, of all the Old Testament references Paul might have introduced here, why does he pick Psalm 44, verse 22? If you go back and read Psalm 44, you find in that psalm that God's people are lamenting the fact that their enemies have crushed them. And that's not that unusual, a lament in the Old Testament. But what's unusual in this psalm is that God's people at this point are pretty sure that they haven't forgotten God. They haven't been false to his covenant. In other words, their suffering does not seem to them to be a result of sin. So why are they suffering? The answer of the psalmist comes in verse 22 of that psalm. Yet for your sake, God, your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalmist comes to the revolutionary thought that, as one commentator puts it, suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world that is at war with God. And Paul brings that verse in here because he knows that the wrong perspective in our lives on suffering is going to totally upend the assurance that God has for us as, he's been, as Paul has been spelling out in this chapter. 
That, that is, that, that we're, we're tempted to misread the painful situations in our lives, the tribulation, distress, persecution, and so on that Paul lists here. We're tempted to misread those situations to mean that, that God is not for us, but he's against us. And we wrongly conclude that God must be punishing us and certainly could not be interested in our good. So that we genuinely do wonder if the sort of things listed here by Paul will indeed separate us or have separated us from the love of, of Christ. Well, do they? Listen to Paul's concluding remarks in verses 38 to 39. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How sure is Paul about this? He says we're not just conquerors when it comes to gaining all that Jesus has secured for us. We're, we're more than conquerors. And the key to conquering is that you don't let anything else conquer your confidence in Christ's love for you. And to bolster our confidence, Paul then provides here this list of things that cannot drive a wedge between Christ's love and us. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither powers nor height nor depth. Oh, and just in case I've forgotten anything, Paul says, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation and there is no separation from the love of God. Jean Guichard is a French photographer who in 1989 uh, took six photographs that became his most famous photographs. The photos all show a lighthouse off the northwest coast of France called La Jument. The lighthouse is 154 feet high, but in the photos it's being thrashed by these 33 foot high waves. When I saw the photos for the first time, you know, I'm, I'm like most, I think, just immediately impressed by the sheer resilience of a lighthouse like that, the solid structure able to withstand such powerful waves. But as you look more closely at the lighthouse, you notice there's this small figure of a man standing in the doorway. You can easily miss him at first, but he's clearly there. And what takes a bit more scrutiny, and you probably can't see this in the picture on the screen to notice, is the man's stance He's standing there with a hand in one of his pockets. That is, he's totally chilled. He's actually relaxed. He knows that these massive waves were not going to harm him because the lighthouse is not going to budge. And that's the same kind of assurance that Paul's inviting you and me to into in this passage. That the invincible purposes of God will not allow sin or suffering to cast us adrift from the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. That for those of us who are in Christ, we can be so sure about this that we can proverbially put our hands in our pockets and relax, secure in the confidence that God will achieve his purposes. If God is for us, who's against us? God not only wants you to save you, he wants you to know that you're saved, and he wants that knowledge to transform everything about your life. 
There's actually a postscript to this lighthouse photo because the man at the doorway was only there because he'd opened the door and he heard the helicopter to see the helicopter overhead in which Jean Guichard was taking, from which he, the photographer was taking the photo. However, he suddenly realized at that very moment that a giant wave was about to engulf the structure and so he rushed back inside the lighthouse to save his own life. And that actually might be a closer picture of what the Christian life is like according to Romans 8. That in Christ we are on the one hand totally relaxed because we know God has everything in control and on the other hand we're forever rushing into the safe arms of our loving Heavenly Father through Jesus our Savior. That that's what this life looks like in this time between. If God is for us, who is against us? So who is the us? It's not warring soldiers. It's not your favorite sports team. Paul spells it out in this passage. It's those who trust that God gave up his son to pay for our sins. It's those who know that Jesus is interceding for us right now. Use the title of our previous sermon series, This Is Us. It's those who follow Christ. It's everyone here who comes to him. There may be a few of us here today thinking, well, that sounds nice, but I don't think that could include me. Not based on what I've done, not based on what my life has been like. But you'd be wrong there. Because it's everyone who comes to him. That if you think about it, Paul's us here has to include those who aren't yet following him, but will. I have no idea who they all will be, but we can be absolutely sure, based on what Paul writes in this chapter, that they're out there. Some of you here may be out there today, those who've not yet become part of the us yet. And this Advent and Christmas season, Jesus is inviting you into the us. This us is not a clique. It's not a closed shop. It's not an elite club for few private members. It's for anyone. Jesus died on the cross. His arms were stretched out wide to welcome all who would come to him. Don't you also want the assurance to be included in the us who can say God is for us? God is for us. God is for us. For those in Christ, for us, there's no condemnation. And there's no separation from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, I know that I haven't done this passage justice because it, it just is, it's nosebleed territory when we think about it. And yet I pray your Holy Spirit would have taken it and, and given us more assurance than we had than we walked in here this morning. For those of us who are in the us, may this have helped us understand there is no condemnation, there is no separation through Christ from your love. And for any of us who are still on the outside of the us, may this invitation be overwhelmingly beautiful such that we come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.